Really, really good to be back. Uh, if you're new this week or haven't known what I've been doing, I just spent uh, 10 days in Ethiopia. So I actually had to miss two uh, campus collectives, and it was really, really hard. I love being here and singing with you guys and, and preaching through uh, the Bible. Um, I trust Danny. Danny Rumpel, I believe, was the first week, right? Um, finished up Jonah for us and talked about some missional opportunities. And then um, Jake doing Philippians 3 last week. So appreciate you, Jake, for um, feeding us as we... Um, just continue right along. So we're actually starting a new series today, uh, Romans chapter 8. And the title of this series is All This Glory. Um, and really that title is, is put in place simply because if you've ever been around the Bible or have read Romans or particularly Romans 8, you know that this chapter is loaded um, if you have questions about the implications of the gospel or how your life should be changed because Jesus is alive, you read Romans 8, you will leave floored. Uh, these, these verses will show us glory that we literally cannot comprehend. The gospel is so, so good. Jesus is a treasure and Romans 8 will literally help us kind of lift the diamond of the gospel up and, and, and look at all the different facets and the beauty of all that it means for us that God is for us in Christ. And I'm going to warn you, I spent 10 days you know, with 30,000 Ethiopian believers worshiping and I've been gone for three weeks, so tonight could go 100, 120 minutes. Um, really excited, just kidding, um, about Romans 8. But all of this to say this, in, as we look at a chapter with this much just loaded truth, I want to challenge you that you should be starving for more of the gospel. And I'm praying that this chapter overwhelms you with the gospel over and over and over and over again. So to, to conclude our introduction, like I said, I've been gone for three weeks here are seven reasons why Romans 8 is incredible, okay? Number one. Now, I borrowed these and shortened them to put them in language I can understand. Uh, number one. This chapter deals with the brokenness of the universe and what will happen when Jesus fixes everything and makes everything new. So we're going to see that as we go through the... 38, 39 verses of Romans 8, we're going to see the brokenness of the universe and what Jesus is going to do to make everything new. Number two, the chap this chapter will powerfully show our salvation from eternity past to eternity future. So I don't know if you knew that or not, but our salvation has ripple effects all the way into eternity past and it will go on forever and ever into eternity future. This chapter shows us that. Number three, the chapter shows off the Trinitarian shape of our gospel. So God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, all on full display in Romans chapter 8. Number four, the chapter shows us how the horror of suffering is overwhelmed by the hope of glory. So if you're someone who struggles with how can God be good and bad things happen and how is there hope in the midst of horrible things, this chapter shows the horror of suffering and how it is overwhelmed by the hope of glory. Number five. This chapter will show us our status as children of God. This chapter, probably more consistently and more powerfully than many others in the Bible, will show us we belong to Jesus. Number six, this chapter will show off how secure we are in the love of God. If you're someone who struggles with insecurity or think that you've messed this thing up too much, God can never love you, Romans 8 will blow that up for you. Number seven, 
this chapter will show how the deepest of theologies should ultimately make us people who obey God by loving Him and loving our neighbors. That's seven reasons, um, and I want to put this out there. There's no possible way we're going to touch all of the beauty of Romans 8 in a five-week sermon series. Uh, Some of the guys that have been studying this with me, they can attest to that. Like, this is literally just all this glory. There's there's so much here. Um, So I would probably consider a win at the end of, maybe after tonight, or at least after these five weeks in Romans 8, that you would just be compelled and desire to memorize it. That at the end of this, you would think, I want Romans 8 to be in my arsenal um, as I fight for faith. Um, that would be a win. So that's the title of the series. Here's the title of our sermon tonight. The title of the sermon tonight is Explosive Gospel Logic. Explosive Gospel Logic. Logic, And I know that's a weird uh, term. I feel like it's a little better than gospel burst. Um, if you know, uh, Jana likes to make fun of that title um, at the end of our series. But, but the reason I say explosive gospel logic is because this is going to get really, really deep tonight. Really deep. Your mind is going to be challenged. Romans 8 is not for the faint of heart. We're going to have to define terms. We're going to have to show off their implications for theology. But listen. The point of this is not just to act smart. The point is to see what God in His deep truths showing them to us, how He might change our minds. But it's not just meant to fill our heads. It's meant to stir something deep in our souls, in our hearts. And as we see these realities in our heart, we will be overwhelmed with God's love. Because listen, We miss the point of Romans 8 if we leave here just enjoying big Bible words. But we should leave in awe of the love that God has for us. And finally, these truths that are resonating deep in your mind and hopefully compelling your heart to love God and love people should be too much for you to keep in your own personal religious life. We don't quite get theology until it has broken us for the lost people in our lives. Um, Really, what you're going to hear tonight is the gospel over and over and over again. And I want to challenge you that the gospel isn't just the the ABC of the Christian life. Like, once you, like, figure out the gospel, then you move on to, like, the cool, deep stuff. The gospel is a through Z. Um, I've heard it said before that the gospel is not the diving board, like you don't jump into the pool of Christianity. The gospel is actually the entire swimming pool that you spend your whole life swimming through and enjoying. So, as we slow down to look at every sentence, every phrase in these first 11 verses, I'm hoping to show you how the logic, the grammar in these verses are exploding with gospel truths that will fill your mind, overwhelm your heart, and compel your hands to go on mission. So one warning before we start this chapter. You need to know that the enemy of gospel boredom is real. I believe that in our generation especially, boredom is one of the greatest tricks of the enemy. Like, do you realize how devastating it is for those of us that know Jesus that sometimes we just kind of get bored of the fact that God has rescued us? Have you ever been bothered by how much prayer doesn't move you? Um, 
Think of these things that we sing and we say Jesus is worthy of all praise, but sometimes instead of standing in awe or just humbly on our knees worshiping Jesus, we just kind of walk around as if life doesn't matter. This scares me to death, and I know that it's not going to be some motivational speech or some big worship rally that's going to get us to the point where we are people who are marked by the gospel. It is going to be the Lord using his word to break us with the gospel so that we leave here people who are marked by loving Jesus with our whole lives. Christians should be the most confident people in the world. I hope you know that. We believe the things that we say we believe about the God of the universe. We should be walking around with the most confidence. We know too much to stay the same. So let's dig in. Romans 8.1 There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now we just got to stop. Like, what a reality for us. Let's look at the first phrase. Notice just the words here. The word therefore shows us that we must look back to see why this reality is true for us. So we need to look at Romans 7 to understand this. There is therefore. Anytime you see therefore in the Bible, you got to ask, what's it there for? Right? So if you see that, something before this verse is showing us more meaning of the truth in verses verse 1. So a summary of Romans 7, this is for your notes, I'm not going to go through all of it, but the idea behind Romans 7 is that it gives us a peek behind the curtain of the heart of a Christian who struggles with sin. Um, it to- shows us that we are all born sinful and that when, we, when God rescues us, we're given a new nature, but our sin nature still is at war with our new nature. You guys get that? You've been following Jesus, right? Like um, Paul says things like, there's things I want to do, but I don't do them. And then there's things I don't want to do, and then I go do them. Right? Some of y'all should be nodding your head. Right? Like you've been there. You, you have sins that you're saying, I'm never going to do. I don't ever want to do that. But then you do it. And even sometimes when we know we shouldn't sin or this, we shouldn't even go near that temptation, we still pick sin. The bottom line of Romans 7 is that entering into a relationship with Jesus is entering into a war against our own sin. And unfortunately, it's a war that we often lose. And we know this too well. How how many of us promise to never do that one sin again, yet we do it over and over again? How many of us know that it's wrong to hold grudges against people, yet we do it anyways because it feels good? How many of us know that we should risk our social comfort to share the gospel, yet we continue to stay silent? We know about our sinful nature all too well. We are all living in a Romans 7 experience. Look at the end of Romans 7. Paul just does this. After all of this, I don't do these things I want to do. I keep doing the things I don't. And he's just, there's just so much there of of angst. And then he just says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of death? Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus, our Lord. So in this battle, listen, before Romans 8 makes any sense, you've got to land here. These truths have got to grip your life. Number one, you are wretched in your sin. You will never understand God's grace until you realize just how evil that you are. And I know not all of us are out murdering and doing these horrible, evil things that we would categorize as evil. But if God is perfect and we are not, then all of our sin makes us completely rejecting of God. Now listen, we don't drown ourselves in despair, longing for perfection that we can't get in this life. But we must know we are are sinful. 
Number two, we should long for deliverance from this body of death. Our battle with sin should draw us toward the cross and resurrection, not away from it. When you think about how sinful you are and how much, just knock this right off my ear, okay, how sinful you are, it should draw you toward what Jesus has done for you, not away. And third, we have victory through Jesus. We don't fight for victory as Christians, we fight from victory. The battle against our sin is over, and now we fight a defeated enemy. And it's in these realities that Romans 8.1 gets its logical power. Look at this. There is, like, all of these things. You're sinful, you're still warring, you keep failing, and now, listen, there is therefore now no condemnation. These words should be so sweet to us. You aren't condemned. Have you ever truly lived in this freedom? Like, your biggest problem, the worst thing that you ever do is sin. And your biggest problem is unforgiven sin and against a holy God. And if you're in Christ, there is no condemnation. Like, Christians should be the happiest people in the world. We should be the most confident because God is impossible to stop. And we should be the most happy because our biggest problem has been taken care of by Jesus. Here are four truths to make no condemnation anchor into your soul. Here's the first one. God is holy. It's a dangerous thing if the idea of God's holiness gets boring to us. Think about these truths. God is over and above and outside of all creation. God is 100% morally pure. God is transcendent. He is beyond time and space. And God alone is worthy of complete worship. Nothing and no one else. God is holy. When I was in Ethiopia, I was nervous twice. The first time that I was nervous was when we were all at the airport and we were getting ready to go into this country. And I'm very not cultured as a person, okay? So I was very scared about the idea of going to a different country where no one spoke English. But we had a 30-year veteran missionary going with us, so I thought, whatever. Like, he'll take us around and we'll get through everything. Um, it was the day. We are getting ready. We're at the airport. We drove all night to Washington, D.C. We're there at the airport, 6 a.m., driving all night. We're getting ready to go, and we get a call from this veteran missionary that says... Hey guys, my, uh, my flight got canceled. You guys have to go in the country by yourself and um, just act like you know what you're doing. That was the advice. So I'm like, I'm freaking out at this point. Like, just like, okay, act like, what is that even? Like, how do you act like what you know and doing in Amharic, right? Like, I don't even know. I stand out already. Um, I just, I was super, super nervous. That was number one. Number two was the time that we did a hippo boat tour. And what a hippo boat tour is, there's a body of water where hippos are, and you get in a boat, and you, you boat around them, and you look at them. Um, and this is, honestly, I, I, we were in some interesting situations, and this was one of the only times that I got super, super nervous. And here's why. Did you know that hippos were one of the most dangerous animals in the animal kingdom in Africa? Some of y'all knew? Okay. I've heard number two is mosquito. Number one's hippo. Um, did you know that they can... They literally have been known to destroy entire villages by themselves. That's terrifying. Number two, they, they can weigh up to 9,000 pounds. 
Um, They have killed more humans than any other animal in Africa. They have teeth as sharp as razor blades. That's horrible. Also, (laughs) they produce their own sunscreen through their own sweat. So, like, even the African sun doesn't bother them at all. And, And have you seen the videos of them where they put the watermelon in their mouth and they just, like chomp it and the watermelon explodes. Have you all ever seen that? YouTube that. Um, and, and also, they can get mad and run underwater. So, like, they don't even swim. They, they are so heavy that they just get mad and run, and they can run at burst up to 30 miles an hour. Now, to put that in perspective, Usain Bolt, fastest man in the world, clocked in at 28 miles an hour during his world record 100-meter dash. So a hippo can run faster than the fastest man in the world, which I'm assuming I am slower than him. (laughs) And and so basically these are like African army tanks with legs and no moral compass. Okay? And and this is what's weird. Here we are just kind of floating around them. And and here's what, and this is where it got really weird for me. We're, we're, We're all floating around these huge beasts, these giant, and they can crush me. And we're on this boat, just kind of calmly floating, just taking pictures, just like videoing. There was one time where these natives were canoeing across one, and I did start videoing just in case, you know. (laughs) And it just seemed so easy. Like, these are the most terrifying beasts in Africa, and here we are just kind of floating around as if nothing matters, maybe even yawning on the boat. And something hit me because I I think we do this with the holiness of God. There's more power in God than we could ever imagine. We read stories and acts of him, literally the people who follow this God get accused of turning the world upside down. Power that defeats the grave. More glory than we can ever imagine. And sometimes we just yawn. We open his word to hear from the God of the universe that has more power, power that created, literally created everything that we see. And we're content just taking pictures. We need to wake up to this reality. If we're ever going to be changed and different, we've got to quit yawning at hippos. Number two, God is holy. Number two, we are not. We are corrupt. Outside of God's help, we are incapable of doing anything worthy of Him. Even our good deeds are filthy rags. And because of that, number three, we deserve condemnation. In His holiness, God must punish sin. He isn't just overreacting. He is acting perfectly within who He is. God is just, but God is wrath. Number four, We deserve to be condemned, but number four, in Christ, we are not. Because of Jesus, God's love for us and His justice meet together for His glory and our good. Jesus didn't just die for us, He died instead of us and was raised. And now, we are raised with Jesus in perfect standing with God forever and ever and ever. There is no condemnation for you because of Jesus. And look who it's for. For those who are in Christ Jesus. Notice that these glorious truths are aimed at a certain type of person. This no condemnation present reality is for people who are in Christ. So we need to make a very clear biblical distinction. There are two kinds of people in the world. There are people who are in their flesh, in their sin, 
And there are people who are in Christ. All of the blessings of God are for people who are in Christ. All of the horrible, terrifying cursings of God are for people who are in their flesh. And listen, we are all naturally in our flesh. And in Christ, our flesh dies and rises again to new life. So as we look at the rest of this passage, these in Christ, no condemnation blessings will flow from this idea. Because what you're going to notice in the rest of these ten verses is it's going to keep saying for this. So it's going to keep making this argument. There, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus for da 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 for da 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 da. And it's going to keep showing these ideas as they compound for each other to show you just how empowering and beautiful the idea that you are not condemned should make you. So people in Christ, soak it all in. Be in awe tonight. People in flesh, repent and believe. Don't want to yawn at hippos here tonight. None of us. God is this good. We can't leave here the same. Verse 2. There's therefore not a combination for those who are in Christ. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So, just for your notes, the law of the spirit of life is the authority and the power of the spirit of God that is unleashed in us through the gospel. So the law of the spirit of life is at work, and it's what God does in us by his spirit once we've been brought to life in Christ or got saved or started following Jesus. So we are not condemned because the law of the spirit of life has done something to us decisive and powerful to change our lives. Look what the spirit, the law of the spirit of life has done. It has set you free in Christ Jesus From the law of sin and death. So there's no condemnation. Why? Because the Spirit of God has done something. What has the Spirit of God done? He has set you free. Now remember, in our culture, we have to constantly define this. Freedom is not doing whatever you want. Freedom is being free to do what you were made to do. You were made to glorify God by obeying and loving and trusting Him forever. And our sin, our flesh, works against that works against what you were made to do as a human. People who are not bound by religion, bound by Christianity, are the ones that are actually enslaved because they can't help but do what they were not made to do. But the Spirit of God has done something different to people who know Jesus. He has set us free. Meaning, literally, our hearts can now want to do what we were actually made to do. That is freedom. And the law of sin and death, the authority of sin, the authority of death on us, is death for us because we can never live a life that is pleasing to God on our own. And now the gospel has set us free from that. We can now, you realize this, you can now, in Christ, you can now say no to sin. Before Jesus, you couldn't. Now you can. Now that you're in Christ, you can say yes to obeying Jesus, that is freedom. So let's keep the gospel logic going. We must ask, how does, there's no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ. Why? The Spirit of God has done something decisive and powerful in your life. What has he done? He set you free. How has he set us free? Look at three. Four, God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh 
in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So this freedom that is ours, for those of us that are in Christ, is because God has done something for us that we could never do on our own. Please realize this. We don't get life on our own. We don't have the power to raise the dead, but God does. So we've got to ask ourselves, if God has done what the law could not do, what could the law not do? What could the law not do? The law could not save us. The law could not fulfill the law's demands. God's law for humans, the requirement for humanity is that we love him perfectly forever by loving our neighbors. And you know this, just knowing that doesn't change a heart. Just knowing rules doesn't make you the type of person who loves and cherishes those rules. The law couldn't do what needed to be done. The law is still good. The law is still perfect. The law is still holy. But because of our flesh, we have weakened it. We could not do what the law required. But God did what we can never do in our own flesh. The law couldn't solve our sin problem. It only exposed our sin problem more. But what does God do? Get this, please. God shows us, like in the law, he shows us the way to live a life pleasing to him. And all it does is show us that we can't do it. But God doesn't stop there. He doesn't just say, here's what I demand. Can't do it? Too bad. He loves us. It was loving enough to show us the law, but he loves us enough to show us a law fulfiller. God sends Jesus. God sends Jesus in the likeness of sinful flesh. So he takes on flesh, never sins himself, but he enters into our flesh to take on the battle against sin. He came for sin, to obliterate sin. That was the whole reason. Jesus comes perfectly fulfilling the law so that the requirements needed to have a life that is actually and finally pleasing to God, He does for us. And not just that, He condemns sin in the flesh. When Jesus died on the cross in our place, God unleashed a final victory blow to sin. Jesus didn't just come to show us how to live a right life. He came to die for our wrong life. And when he rose again, he doesn't just come to show us how to live. He doesn't just come to die for our mistakes. He actually dies, rises again to give you his righteousness. Man, if we could ever understand this. We are not condemned. Doesn't this mean that our sins were brushed underneath this giant divine rug? It means that you are given perfect life in Jesus. So now, in this reality, we are able to walk according to the Spirit to obey God. So then we got to ask, there's no condemnation. Why? The Spirit of God's done something. Okay. How's He do it? Since Jesus dying, rising again. And now that we have this righteous life, How do we walk according to it? That's what 5 and 6 show us, okay? Look at 5 and 6. So how we walk according to the Spirit, not the flesh, of this present reality that is ours now because of Jesus. Four, there's that four again. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on Spirit is death. 
is life and peace. So people who live according to the flesh, which is the kind of people we don't want to be, what they do is set their minds on the things of the flesh. And notice this. Notice the biblical idea here. Your thought life is an indication of what kind of person that you are. Notice that there. To only have your mind set on the flesh shows that you are a person of the flesh. And, and, and apart from Christ in, in the flesh, we can't love and cherish the things of God. And we also can't help but only think about things that bring us death. That's a person who lives according to sin and according to flesh. But people who live according to the Spirit, which is the kind of people we want to be, are people who set their minds on the things of God. Here's another verse to show you. You've probably you've been around the Bible at all. You've probably seen this verse, Romans 12, 2. It says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and what is acceptable and what is perfect. So please, stay in this. Stay in this mindset. People in the flesh are conformed to the world's way of thinking. They think they're the, they're the gods of their own fate. They think they get to decide what they want to do. This is why they need their minds renewed. All they're thinking about is things that lead them to death. But people in the Spirit, people like us that have no condemnation, that have Christ's righteousness, we are people who are now free to set our minds on the things of God. To set our minds on things that are good, acceptable, and perfect. So let's take three things in your life. Let me show you the contrast here. Number one, your battle with sin. In the flesh, you would say that self is king and that doing what feels good or feels right is what you should do. But the spirit would say repent from sin. It is horrible. It needs to be destroyed. In your fight in suffering, in the darkness of this world, flesh would say that suffering is to be avoided. But the Spirit would say that suffering is making you like Jesus. If you're stuck in the mind of the flesh, when you go through that inevitable phone call that changes your life and everything falls apart, you will have no grounding to stand on. We've got to be people who have our minds on the Spirit. When you consider your life direction, flesh would say that life is all about making much of you in every decision. But the Spirit would say that life is about making much of God. Flesh leads to death. Spirit leads to life. The, the logic keeps going in 7 and 8. It says, For, here's why these things are true about the flesh and about the spirit. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Notice that the mind set on the flesh isn't just dead. It is hostile to God. God does not tolerate people who are not submitting to His law. He is full of mercy. He is full of grace. But you cannot please God unless you are in Christ. You can't do it. In Christ, you are now pleasing to God. In the flesh, you are not pleasing to God. But I love this. It's almost like the brakes hit in verse 9. We have all these hard things about flesh and spirit and you know, the, the tension is there. And then in verse 9 it says this, You, however. Talking to Christians now. So Christians in the room, your ears should be tuning in. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. 
But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Notice this. The you here are people who have trusted Jesus, who are in Christ. And the Spirit of God is in you. But notice, it's not just, you know, you have the Spirit if you say you're a Christian. Or you have the Spirit if you are fooling everybody else in your friend group that you're Christian. You don't have the Spirit if you're just playing the game. But you have the Spirit if He dwells in you. So how do you know? Do you love Jesus? Do you hate your sin? Do you delight in the things of God when no one else is looking and it's just you and Him? If yes, then you can take assurance that you belong to Him. And I love this. It keeps going. It says that even though our bodies are dead, we're sinners, we are sinful, we are in the flesh, we can actually have true life because of these gospel truths. Don't fall into the fleshly way of thinking about what life truly is. Life isn't about just getting all the money and all the fame and all the people to like you. And listen, life isn't even just about getting the perfect little content Christian ministry home. Jesus was the most complete person to ever live. And He was single, homeless, betrayed, and suffered more than anybody else. And His life was glorious. Why? Because he was righteous. Righteousness with God is the good life. We can't get that without him. But because of him, we have it. Which means, think of this logic. You can be homeless, betrayed, single, drop out of your major, drop out of college, flunk out, everything falls apart. But if you are righteous before God, that means you can have life Peace, contentment. Do you realize how this would change us? Imagine how we would interact with lost people if we were the kinds of people that literally thought, if everything in my life falls apart, I still can have life and peace. Man, Marshall wouldn't be able to stop a group of people like that. I hope you realize that. People who realize that even though they fail over and over and over again, there's still no condemnation. And even though we get trapped in our own little versions of depression and anxiety and things don't make sense, because we have Jesus as our life, nothing can stop the life and peace that God has for us. Not because you obeyed your way into God, but because He obeyed for you and gave you that. Not only that, there's all this glory. How do we even... Gosh, how do we even land the plane? The same Spirit who raises Jesus from the dead is the Spirit that lives in you. All that power, all of this glory, aimed at you, not just aimed at you and working for you, but it actually gives life to your dead, hopeless body. This life that is power over sin because sin has been defeated and there is no condemnation. And it is from that victory that we can finally say no to sin. Listen, some of y'all need to hear that. You don't need to just fight these sin problems you have with more willpower. You need to fight these sin problems you have with life. Sin is leading you to death, but you have life in Christ. 
And it's a life that has power through suffering so we can know that even though death surrounds our lives and darkness breaks us down, we truly have life on this earth because of Jesus. As the band comes back up so we can celebrate this evening, this life is not only power over sin, not just power through suffering, it's also freedom to live on mission for the greatest cause in the whole world. Please slow down and hear this. I know... I know that we are entering into this time of the semester where it's going to be really easy to check, just check out and just kind of coast. And I am begging you, read Romans 8 until you just can't coast anymore. If these things are true, if we really have power over sin, and if we really have power, even if the worst thing happens to you tomorrow, and you can still have life and peace, then we are truly free to live for the greatest cause in the whole world. Seeing people who are trapped in the law of sin and death set free in the law of the Spirit of life. So I would challenge you tonight as we get ready to sing, I'm going to pray for us. I would challenge you to just pray a prayer. Ask God to do whatever it takes to wake you up with these things. Like, like, can we please no longer be people who just wake up tomorrow on Wednesday and just kind of coast through our weekend with no paying attention to the things of God? I'm so tired of that existence for me. When I have the life of Jesus literally pulsating through my veins, that means every interaction matters, every good deed can have eternal consequences. No sin is too much because Jesus is stronger. No suffering can take me down because Jesus is my life. And we are set free and no longer live for the trap of for ourselves and gather all these things. We are free to set other people free. So I'm going to pray. And don't just listen to me pray. I want you to pray right now to God. Number one, if you, if you don't know Jesus, I would pray that these realities would be stinging you right now. That you would come to grips with the fact that God is holy, you are not, and you are condemned if Jesus, if you don't respond to the news of what Jesus has done. But if you are a Christian in here, I just pray, you would pray, it's a dangerous prayer, that God would do whatever it takes to make the gospel real in your life. That we would not be satisfied with an existence of just giving lip service to the fact that Jesus, <laughs> that God became flesh, died, and rose again. Okay, let's not yawn at hippos anymore. This is too much. We should sing the loudest. We should be the happiest. We should be the most confident. And we should be the most purpose-driven people in the world. Not because of some self-help thing, but because we literally worship a God who defeated death. So I'm going to pray for us. I pray that you would, you would pray with me. And then we would stand and, and sing as people who were actually free. Let's pray. Father, it is by your Spirit that you have set us free from the law of sin and death. God, apart from you, we are stuck in our hostile to you ways. We are stuck just picking new ways to deceive ourselves and new ways to lead ourselves to death. But God, you loved us so much. You love us so much. You did not just show us the way to righteousness. You became our righteousness. And Lord, I will never comprehend the fact that it was my sin that put your son on the cross. 
I don't understand that kind of love, God, but I pray as you tell us to pray in Ephesians that you would widen our hearts that we might understand the height and depth of the love of God. That you would help us as the people of God in this room to never be the same. So, Lord, I don't know what it's going to take. Um, I don't know what you're going to have to move and shake in this ministry to make us people who are falling on our knees in front of you daily. But, God, I'm begging you to do it. Make me uncomfortable. Wreck our lives. Do whatever to make us people who truly live as free people. Uh, So, Lord Jesus, as we get ready to sing about your cross and what you've done, I pray. Lord, I pray that we worship as people who are actually free. So by your Spirit, supernaturally, help us worship in spirit and in truth. And help us leave here different. God, we are begging you to make this the last Tuesday. That we walk in here like it's a routine. And we walk out without any mind to the mission that you've given us. Lord, do whatever it takes. It's in your Son's glorious, death-defeating name. Amen.